All right. What's up, everybody? Yeah. Hey, everybody. I don't want to get you, like, riled up, you know? It's just but like, it's a little bit of a bummer uh, to get that sort of response. So I won't take it personally, and I'm just going to teach the Bible. I don't even care. I'm not even going to try to get you to do it again. Maybe one more time. Everybody doing good? Yes. Okay, good. Good. My name's Brian. One of the pastors here at the Summit. Welcome to CO students, which I think are in this-ish area. Good to see you guys. Glad you guys are back as well. And if you're not a CO student, we love you as well, and we're glad you're here also. We love everybody. So uh, my name's Brian. One of the pastors here at the Summit. Uh, Sundays for me, uh, they usually start around 6.30 in the morning, and this morning started, uh, it kind of reminded me of like a tension I feel in my life a lot, where, so at 6.30 I got up, start getting ready, and uh, let my dogs out, and my best friend on my block uh, lives next door to me, his name's Miss Ayel, and Miss Ayel, uh, he, he speaks Spanish, he probably has an English vocabulary of about 50 words, probably half of those are about profanity, um, and then there's there's me, who took high school Spanish. Consequently, I have a Spanish vocabulary of maybe 30-ish words, maybe. Uh, and there's this perpetual tension in Miss Isle and I's relationship where it's like, man, it's like there's so many things I want to say to him. There's so many kind of like things I want to share with him. Um, but there's just sort of this boundary of our language where it's like we, we can't fully engage uh, one another. And I just felt this this morning as he was getting ready to go to work and we said a few things back and forth in our kind of collective like hundred words or so that we have between the two of us. Um, and I don't know, I, I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, I feel like that's a lot of what I feel going into this particular text where, you know, we're talking about the Passover. The Passover is foundational to the Jewish faith. It's foundational also to the trajectory of where the Christian faith takes the Passover as well. And um, I don't know, like this is not false humility. I just I really feel inadequate. I feel like I lack the language to appropriately convey the significance and the beauty of really what uh, unfolds here in the 51 verses uh, that we just read in uh, Exodus chapter 12, but uh, we'll do our best to do it. So we've got like a lot to cover, okay? And because of this then, we're going to try to focus our time uh, on kind of a single idea that we'll chase after for the next uh, half hour or so. Kind of the idea that we're after, I was randomly reading this this past week, uh, a guy named uh, Thomas Watson, he wrote in the 17th century, he said, uh, till sin be bitter, Christ be not sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ be not sweet. And really, the goal that we're after in our time, we'll kind of tackle the Passover the course of two weeks. It's just too huge to cover on one week. But this week, that's what we're chasing after, that idea of how it conveys um, to sin be bitter, Christ be not sweet. Now, we'll see how this emerges from the text. But before we do that, let's start with just sort of making a, a recognition and an acknowledgement that instinctually for us, this is very, very different and kind of counterintuitive to the way that we think about this particular concept. We exist in a culture where kind of the more predominant narrative is that sin isn't that bad and consequently Jesus isn't that big of a deal. Kind of sin is, uh, you know, the language that's even used. A lot of times sin is even used as a means of like getting your attention, advertising to you, using language as a forbidden, given into desire. Kind of what's communicated not so subtly is there's these things you want to do that are forbidden for you, from you to do, but it's time for you to stop being a religious 
just prude and give in to them and finally start enjoying the life that you always wanted. Very easy example of this in our own city is there's a nightclub in downtown called the church that is, you guessed it, an old church because in Denver, when churches die, they don't get filled by other churches. They get filled by lofts, condos, shared workspace, or clubs. And, uh, you know, every Sunday night, so like about probably in a couple hours, probably not starting now, but in a few hours, they will have their weekly sin night. And the way that it's communicated is sort of the language of forbidden, temptation, giving in to desire. The imagery is very, very discreet. And this, this message is being communicated to you. Stop being religious. Stop being prudish. Give in to what you desire. Finally, have some fun and some enjoyment in your life. The consequence of this understanding of sin then is that Jesus is really seen maybe at best as a good moral teacher who helps you live a slightly more uh, morally improved life, and really at worst, a cosmic killjoy who's preventing you from kind of doing the things that you always wanted to do, which results then into a collective kind of understanding of Christianity that says something along the lines of, you know what, I don't really want to believe this, but I at least have some sort of traditional background that has me believing that there's a heaven and a hell. I want to go to the good place, not the bad place. Consequently, I'll suck it up and I'll live a miserable life because I think there's something after I die that which even in itself is not that compelling because the way it's been portrayed to me is kind of existing this disembodied angel baby state where I play a harp at times. And uh, that's kind of what I'm missing out on all the fun stuff that my friends are doing uh, as a consequence. Now, let me just go ahead and say this on the front end. If this is the way that you understand Christianity, that sin is kind of the things you really want to do, um, but don't get to do because God is killing your joy, that Jesus is nothing more than a cosmic killjoy who gives you kind of principles for living a slightly more morally improved life. Here's the thing. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't blow me away that you're not very compelled by Christianity, okay? It doesn't blow me away whatsoever. In fact, if that's what I believe that Christianity is, um, not only would I not be a pastor, I wouldn't be a Christian. And what we need is really a radically different understanding and interpretation of what the Christian faith that emerges directly out of the Passover story. Really, the Passover story, it's kind of like if you had blurred vision, you would hopefully go to the doctor and the doctor would give you glasses so you finally could see clearly. So the Passover story is meant to function as a lens through which you interpret your reality correctly and see the bitterness of sin, the sweetness of salvation, the magnitude of what we've been saved from, the beauty and the goodness of the salvation that we receive through the death death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to work through this, and we're going to see the bitterness of sin, the sweetness of Christ emerging from the Passover story. We'll start with uh, the bitterness of sin. We're actually covering Exodus 11 and 12, but I didn't want to make Andy read 300 verses tonight. So uh, Exodus 11 basically is a recap of everything that we've seen up to this point. There's astounding wickedness in Egypt. In Egypt, you've got this weird systemic uh, enslavement of the Israelite people, as well as the systemic genocide and the killing of their babies. God is just in his nature. He cares. He cares. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to the oppressed. Consequently, he draws near and he calls Egypt and kind of the guy, Pharaoh, who's at the epicenter of this wickedness to repent and to turn away from this wickedness. Uh, Pharaoh does not repent. He doubles down. He says, I don't know who God is. I can play God. I don't need to let God be God over my life. And God consequently sends a series of plagues that we've been looking at over the past month or so, uh, three at a time, that escalate in nature, calling Pharaoh and consequently the people he's leading to turn away from this wickedness and to turn to the one true living God. The 
we've been through nine of these plagues. This leads us then to the 10th plague that is the Passover. Now, we read a lot of texts. I want to draw your attention in particular to verse 29 and 30, verses 29 through 30, which kind of shows the heart of what it is that God does through the death of the firstborn. And then we'll talk about two significant implications uh, that stem from what happens here. Verse 29 says, At midnight the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. All right, two implications of what happens here as we think about the bitterness and the seriousness of sin. First, the first implication is we see a final blow given to Egypt's gods. Okay, a final blow is given to Egypt's false gods. And we see God actually in Exodus 12 say this for himself when he says, and as he's doing this, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, Josh taught us last week, and Josh did a really great job of helping us see that in kind of the, the midst of these plagues, what's happening is that God is progressively working his way up the hierarchy of the polytheistic Egyptian uh, pagan religious system where the plagues are getting higher and higher up the totem pole and going after kind of more and more significant and influential deities. Last week, it's very easy to see that in the ninth plague where God brings darkness, where as God brings darkness, God takes out the Egyptian deity of Ra, the second most important influential deity in the Egyptian polytheistic system. And even probably some of you can remember from like your third grade, like I don't know why they cover this in third grade, like Egyptian pagan gods, but like I remember that from like third or fourth grade, like Ra and the way he looked and he did stuff. And I'm like, man, that guy seems pretty cool. God takes him out because God's like real and Ra isn't real as well. But it still has to get to the pinnacle of this religious system for all of it to be crumbled and taken down. And there's one deity, one false deity left for God to take out. That is the Pharaoh himself, who is kind of the living, breathing, touchable, tangible, the very obvious uh, kind of uh, epicenter of this religious system that's producing such astounding wickedness like enslavement and like genocide. Now, what's important for you to understand is the Pharaoh was this person. And uh, the Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica puts kind of the Egyptian worldview of who uh, or kind of the way this guy functioned in this particular way. It says this, the Egyptians believe their Pharaoh to be the mediator between the gods and the world of men. The Pharaoh's divine status was portrayed in allegorical terms. His uraeus, the snake on his crown, spat flames at his enemies. He was able to trample thousands of the enemy on the battlefield, and he was all-powerful, knowing everything and controlling nature and fertility. As a divine ruler, the pharaoh was the preserver of the God-given order called Mat. He owned a large portion of Egypt's land and directed its use, was responsible for his people's economic and spiritual warfare, and dispensed justice to his subjects. His will was supreme, and he governed by royal decree." What we see emerge then uh, in the plagues is they're not just sort of taking out peripheral deities, but all of them, one after the other in a diversity of ways, have been aimed after undermining the authority of this guy. The tenth is sort of the final death blow where everybody sees the bankruptcy of this guy's power. He's not a deity. He's not in control. He's not a mediator between the gods and mankind because he's on the other end of this tremendous tragedy, the death of his firstborn. And with this, then, as a consequence, God has sort of brought the entire false religious beliefs of the Egyptian people crumbling down. That's the first implication. The second implication that's jumping out of this is the seriousness of sin. 
the seriousness, a clear glimpse into the seriousness of sin. And look with me at 1223. The text says this, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel um, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now, you should be a little bit startled by that language, right? Like destroyer, whoa, we don't talk like that, right? Like it's a little over the top. And uh, actually one of the reasons I love teaching through entire books of the Bible is because like it it forces us to press into portions of the scripture um, that like run kind of counter to the predominant cultural narratives that we have. Now we've talked about this, right? Kind of initially, we said this throughout this series, initially kind of in a culture where profanity doesn't exist, the one profane word that you can use is the word judgment or sin, right? It's like, don't even go there. Don't even say that. It's tremendously uh, offensive. And yet we exist in this culture where kind of unlike almost any other time in recent American history, we clamor for justice and judgment almost like nobody else who's preceded us. Now, why is that? Well, I mean, the reason we talked about this is the reason we clamor for justice, even in an age where it says, hey, the one rule is never to judge anybody, is because you can't escape your design. You were created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. God is just in his nature. Consequently, you can't outrun a thirst and a quest for justice to be realized and to be served. And I feel like where the easy kind of way to see the reality of this is think about this. Like the ideas that are being presented here aren't that kind of like offensive whatsoever. We sort of, regardless of worldview, regardless of religious belief, we affirm these realities. So just think, for example, about kind of the major news events that have unfolded over the past couple of weeks. You had uh, about a week ago, uh, Tiger Woods uh, get a DUI. Uh, The eye was not alcohol, but the eye eye of influence, it was sort of like some uh, pain-killing drugs. Um, You had uh, a week ago, uh, almost to the day, you had a writer for the Denver Post uh, who tweeted something incredibly race, racist uh, in response to, I'm laughing like it's an okay thing. I'm not like, it's, I don't know how else to respond. It makes me so uncomfortable that this guy said this. But this guy, he, he said something incredibly racist in response to a, a driver of Japanese ancestry winning the uh, Indianapolis 500 on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you had yesterday uh, a terrorist attack on London Bridge as well as Borough Market, which are very close to one another uh, in London as well. And then a couple of weeks ago, you also had another terrorist attack uh, at a concert that was full basically of teenage girls and then their dads who were like reluctantly drawn to go to this concert with their daughters. Now here's the thing, is when you think about sort of those major events, regardless of worldview, just look at the way that culture responds and there's sort of shared beliefs that we have. So for example, like we believe that there's such a thing as sin. Like we believe there's such a thing as right and wrong where we look at things like that and we're not like, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. You have your worldview and I have mine and let's not really impose our beliefs on one another. We look at what people do, even things that don't physically harm one another, like a racist tweet and we're like, that's wrong. So we believe that there's such a thing as sin. We also believe there's such a thing as consequences. People aren't just saying like, hey, that's wrong. But people particularly look at social media, look at the trending topics kind of in response to the most like inflammatory things that are happening in culture. And people aren't just saying, hey, that's wrong. But they're saying there should be consequences for those actions as well. A lot of times consequences as severe as being like that person should die or they should definitely lose their job. Not only do we believe that there's sin, not only do we believe that there's consequences for sin, but we believe there's a severity of sin that directly correlates 
to the severity of the sin that has been, there's, there's, sorry, let me say that again, that there's a severity of consequence that runs directly uh, corollary to the severity of the sin that is committed. That's why kind of all of us instinctually, we might disagree about exactly what the punishment should be in each of those cases, but my guess is you would argue the fact that like Tiger Woods should incur a less severe penalty than like the people that killed a bunch of teenage girls and their dads. Now, here's the thing. This is where I need to think, you to think very, very critically, okay? And this is where I need you to be a little bit logically consistent. Is that too much to ask? Maybe it is. Okay, well, I'm going to do it anyways. We believe that there's such a thing as sin. We believe there's such a thing as consequences for sin. We believe that there's such a thing as a severity, uh, kind of sliding scale of severity in response to the nature of the sin that is committed. And yet, here's the thing, is we tend to think that everybody else should fall subject to that system other than us. We tend to think that, like, okay, everybody else should have consequences that directly correlate to their actions, but, like, not me. Like, they're being judged. I'm the judge. Leave me alone. Because when I do something wrong, it's not really my fault. You made me act that way. I was hungry. I act crazy when I get hungry. If you weren't just, like, so anger-inducing, I wouldn't get angry all the time. Now, it's interesting, the most interesting thing I read kind of in response to the news cycle the last couple of weeks was this guy kind of exploring the question of, like, the Tiger Woods case. Like, why are people so culturally obsessed? Why did that dominate not just the sports news cycle, but, like, the news cycle in general for a golfer who's been largely unsuccessful for the last decade or so? Why, why is that? And uh, it's interesting. What he said I thought was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. He said this. He says, I, says, I think this is why we love the ritual public denunciation of fallen idols, if we convince ourselves that they are monsters and moral outliers, then we do not have to face the much more terrifying possibility that they are schmucks like us and that we are schmucks like them. I thought that was incredibly insightful. Incredibly insightful. We believe there's such a thing as a sin. We believe there's consequence for sin. We believe there should be a severity of consequence directly correlated to the nature and the severity of that sin. We just sort of believe that Everybody else should be subject to that system, not us. Now, all of you are very attractive people. Um, you seem like very intelligent people. You seem like people who desire to be logically consistent, which I feel like then I shouldn't have to say much more to be like, hey, I shouldn't think that way, right? Like, like everything up to that point, there's sin, there's consequence, there's severity of consequences. Oh, and, and I fall into that system that's inescapable for me to create. Oh, I am subject to that sort of understanding of sin and its consequences as well. As a consequence then, when we read this portion of Exodus 12 and we see the tragedy that falls upon Egypt, we shouldn't sort of stand at a distance and be like, yeah, you jerks got what you deserve, to be like, no, this is a glimpse of the severity of what sin deserves. What we've seen throughout the entirety of Exodus up to this point is that God has long suffered. This system that exists within all of us as a reflection of the character and the nature of the God who judges and fights to put the world back together in the way that it was meant to be. But God in his grace and mercy long suffers and almost like a dam stores and holds back waters. So God in his grace and his kindness has long suffered alongside his creation and stored up the just wrath and anger that we universally clamor to fall to make things right again. And yet what happens in the evening in Exodus 12 is God just lets the dam break for a second and the waters spill over and we get a glimpse into what the seriousness of sin deserves. We get a glimpse into what judgment day should be. 
And as a consequence then, we should have this just, I don't know how to put it in a more theological like way than just be like, we should have kind of an oh crap reaction. Like, oh crap, like this is what my sin deserves? That if sin, like if everybody sinned, if there's consequences for sin and the nature of the consequence of our sin against God, like the root problem of it is not first and foremost even what we do wrong, but who we wrong, that we look at the most important being in the universe, the one being exclusively giver, creator, sustainer of life. He gives you the very breath that fills up your lungs and you use that breath to reject him and to cry out in an act of cosmic treason. I don't need you. I don't think you're a very good God. I can play God rather than allow God to be God over my lives. I know what's best for me. And really, almost in any culture, the natural consequence of treason is death. It's just like, maybe to bring it into a New Testament perspective, James, uh, in James chapter four, he's like writing to the church in the way that they should understand their sin. And this is what James says. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And look at verse nine. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Now, there's a tension here. The truth is in the tension. We don't want to take it to such a degree that like you did something wrong and you're like, this is going to characterize who it is for the rest of my life and I feel absolute, absolute shame. But this should be a, a response to sin of just like grief, of a mourning of it, like, like it's a death in itself. It's like, let me just ask you a very simple question. Is this the way you feel in response to your sin? Or like, I don't know, do you try to do sort of like intellectual gymnastics and kind of have this response of like, you know, we'll just redefine what sin is and we'll say like, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Do you have the response of like downplaying it? Hey, you have the response of blame shifting and saying, hey, you made me act this way. Do you have the response of saying, you know what? Like I'm a product of my environment. Do you have the response of saying, I don't know, anything other than, like, this grieves me. Like, I, wanna, I, wa- I wanna put this to death. I don't wanna play around with this. I don't wanna see how close, like, I can get without, like, going too far. I don't wanna even ask the question of how far is too far. I think about this, like, almost from a parenting perspective. You know, the, like, the nature of sin that we're seeing here is, like, I don't know, there's certain things when you become a parent that you like forbid your children to do. And if they do, it's really not that big of a deal if they do. So for example, like we have a rule for my daughter that like she can't go into the like pantry and eat a bunch of cookies. But it's like, even if she does it, like it's really not that big of a deal as long as she doesn't eat like an entire like row of those like Girl Scout Thin Mints. Um, you know, she eats like three. It's actually like a fairly delicious act of rebellion. But there's also like, there's also certain things as a parent that we forbid where we say like, hey, like we're also very serious about you not going under the sink and like drinking the chemicals that seem like very colorful and very desirous and they look a lot like soda, but they're actually poison and will kill you. See, a lot of you think of sin kind of like the cookies and not like the poison. And what Exodus 12 is meant to do is to recalibrate your thinking and your understanding of reality be like, no, I'm not gonna play around with this. This is not just a little delicious kind of act of rebellion. This stuff 
kills. And like, I really do believe that. Like with the entirety of my being, it's one of the most burdensome aspects of being a pastor is a lot of times almost wanting better for people than they even want for themselves and them thinking they're the exception and they can outrun the design and the goodness and the way that God has said the world is and what he's declared to be good, right, and true for our lives and to walk willingly and joyfully into things that will kill you and everybody around you as well. Like it just, it's the hardest part of what it is that I do. And it's like, would we just heed the warning of the bitterness of sin at Exodus chapter 12 and say, you know what, I think actually this is the way I want to understand that which is outside of what God has declared to be true and good and right for me. Now, the benefit of this, here's the good news of this passage, is the point is not just like, you're all evil, there is no hope, go be encouraged, okay? Um, There's a second portion of this that is tremendously beautiful and tremendously good news that is uh, in the sweetness of the salvation of Christ. And we see this um, through the theme of the Passover lamb that's predominant throughout Exodus 12 as well. The mention, we said this earlier, that God comes and executes judgment, but always, anytime he brings even the most severe of judgments, he's always working to bring grace and redemption for those who might repent and believe as well. Now, this is evident in Exodus 12 through the provision of a Passover lamb. And uh, God in uh, 12 verses 5 through 13 uh, basically tells Moses what to do with this lamb. And then if you look with me down at verses 21 through, uh, we'll just look at 24, you see Moses relay this information that God's given him about the Passover lamb uh, to the leaders of the community as well. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and your sons forever. Now, just like we talked about two implications of the bitterness of sin, let's talk about two implications of the sweetness of Christ, in particular what emerges here from the theme of the Passover lamb. Now, the first implication that we're seeing is the mention of a provision of a substitutionary sacrifice, a provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, we won't go into a ton of detail this. On April 30th, I did an entire sermon uh, about the idea of substitution. And so uh, if like you want kind of the whole 40-minute spiel, you can go there. Um, But one of the things we talked about in that series is how the greatest expression of love that you have ever received in your life or even witness in films you might watch and expressions of art is that not of sexuality, but actually that of substitutionary sacrifice. And what's happening in Exodus 12 is God is sort of trying to blaze the trail and the hearts and minds of his people to look for redemption through this particular expression of love, that of substitutionary sacrifice. Now, again, we said this is sort of the greatest expression of love uh, you can kind of encounter. And I was thinking about this um, this past Sunday night. So a week ago, 
I went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2 for the second time, um, which is like, I've seen like three movies in theaters over the last year, and two of them was Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So that tells you what I think about that movie. And uh, I won't spoil it because it's only been out for three weeks, but for any of you who have seen it, which was like the number one movie in America for a while, so probably a number of you have seen it, but there's like a continuous theme of substitutionary sacrifice. The most powerful kind of moments are that moment of somebody dying for the sake of others living. But uh, this was really kind of, predominant in the first film as well. And the rule is once the sequel's out, I can spoil the first one. So if you haven't seen the first one, sorry, it's too late for you uh, at this point. But if you remember at the end of the first Guardians of the Galaxy, there's this moment where a, a ship is going down and it appears that the Guardians of the Galaxy are getting ready to die. But then uh, Groot, sort of the tree humanoid type of th- thing, he gathers all of his friends together. For those of you who've seen this, do you, do you remember this? He gathers all of his friends together. It's the most powerful moment um, in this entire film. He gathers all of his friends together, and he starts sort of spreading his limbs around all of his friends to protect him, and he knows that in him doing this, he's going to die, but it's going to allow for his friends to live uh, really yeah, in his place. And uh, there's this really climactic scene. I was actually, I was re-watching this scene kind of in anticipation of, uh, of teaching Exodus 12. And I was sitting in a coffee shop in downtown on Tuesday. And I'm watching the scene where Groot is spreading his arms around all of his friends. And then Rocket Raccoon, with tears going down his face, looks at Groot and says to him, don't do this. What are you doing? You're going to die. And then Groot, with this like smile and this joy just exuding from his face, goes, we are Groot. And there I am in a coffee shop getting dusty, watching a raccoon and a tree talk to one another. That is the intrinsic power of substitutionary sacrifice. Somebody dying so the other might live. If you've ever received that, if you've ever witnessed that, it's more powerful than any other expression of love that is out there. And what God is doing in Exodus 12 through the provision of the Passover lamb is preparing the hearts and minds of his people to say, this is the avenue through which I will fix your sin problem. Like everybody, if they were thinking logically whatsoever, would have like, should have looked at all of this and been like, this is bizarre. This is weird. Like, why does a lamb have to die in the place of people? That lamb didn't even do anything. And like a lamb, lambs are cute. Why can't it be like older? Like, like a lamb, it's so innocent. It's so sweet. It's so blameless. Why does it have to die so that we might live? Exactly. That's the point. Exactly. The, the, initial injustice, the initial appreciation, the initial of this just doesn't even seem fair that like it would get what I deserve and and I would get what it deserves. Like that doesn't seem fair whatsoever. And a lot of times people push back and they kind of make it seem like the entirety of the system is, is barbaric and antiquated. And like, yeah, like if the Christian belief was like salvation comes through the killing of a bunch of animals, that would be weird, Okay. That would be very, very weird. But that's not the Christian belief. The Christian belief is that what was happening in Exodus 12 is God was preparing the hearts and minds of his people for the true and better Passover lamb and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's really the second implication here is that God is having people look forward to say, hey, this is not like an end to itself. Like the blood of bulls and lambs doesn't really fix sin. I'm just trying to train you to understand the magnitude of what my son is gonna do in your place when he comes and steps out of heaven into history. In fact, Jesus says this for himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
that night begins with Jesus sharing a meal. And it's not just a meal with his friends. It's actually the Passover meal because all this was going down in the Jewish calendar, uh, in the portion of the Jewish calendar where um, the Passover was taking place. And what's so strikingly bizarre about the way that Jesus conducts this Passover meal, so we'll, we'll talk about this some last week. The Passover meal was very large. It took a lot of time. It was very intricate. It was actually so complex that you would actually have to have somebody sort of preside over it to explain, hey, here's what the herbs mean. Here's what the bread means. Here's what the cup means. Here's what it is the lamb means. What, what it appears is happening is Jesus is presiding over this meal, explaining to everybody what's going on, but with one striking difference, he takes the spotlight of the Passover meal that historically for centuries had been shown upon God's deliverance in Egypt, and he takes it away from the past onto the future, onto the cross, and he says, all of this was leading up to this moment. In fact, uh, in Mark chapter 14, and we'll have this on the screen, Jesus, he sa- uh, the text is this, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This would have been strikingly offensive. It's like, you can't do that. Like, you can't take the spotlight of the meal and take it off of Egypt and take it onto the cross. But like, Jesus knew exactly what it is that he was doing. And the most bizarre part of the entire meal is the absence of the mention of a lamb whatsoever, right? Like, that's like the most kind of frequently mentioned thing in Exodus 12. Have a lamb, prepare the lamb like this. Don't leave any leftover lamb. Have the lamb. And it's like, what's totally absent? What's totally absent from what it is that we just read? The lamb, right? That's like showing up for Thanksgiving dinner and the turkey not being there. I mean, like, what? Like, it's not Thanksgiving dinner if there's no turkey. It's not Passover dinner if there's no lamb, The lamb was there. The true and better Passover lamb was actually presiding over the dinner and taking the spotlight of its significance off of Egypt onto himself. And as one author uh, puts it, Tim Keller, he says this, that what's being said in this moment is that every other deliverance by every other leader, every other sacrifice, every other prophet, priest, king, and hero have all been pointing to this night. This is the climax of all history. I am about to deal with evil and sin and death once and for all. And Jesus goes from this meal to the cross. And what's happening in this moment is that God, since Exodus 12, is we're preparing our hearts and minds that yes, the dam that held back the righteous anger towards sin that we clamor to have fall on everybody else other than us, but we're not immune to it whatsoever. The dam does break. And can you imagine what that must be like to be standing there as you would witness some giant dam break and its flood of water about to completely encompass you and take you out and to kill you. And then somebody steps in your place and absorbs all upon it, all of it on himself and dies so that you might live. This was the plan. This is where Like, this is why we've said throughout this entire series, like, you can't perfectly and fully understand Exodus apart from the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying for himself in Mark chapter 14. Now, it's like, what do we do with all this, right? There's like some sermons where it's like, it's very easy for me at the end to be like, and here's three things to do, let's be done. Um, Like, if I was doing like a money sermon, I'd be like, have a budget, don't spend more than you make, don't be selfish and give some money away, okay? Like, are we done here? Like, what else? But it's like, what do we do with these truths? 
you know, I, I feel like, you know, kind of that original idea, like I feel the limitation of my language. It's like even, like, I don't know if you know, this is Pentecost Sunday where the church is historically celebrated. The Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, him being given to empower the church to do abundantly more than they could ever ask or imagine. And um, it's like, I feel like even this time, it's like, I feel his necessity. Like there's an inadequacy of my language to perfectly tell you like what to do. Like here are the moments where I as a pastor and we as people cannot propel our hearts to believe and to feel what it is we're meant to believe and feel. You know, like what are we supposed to do with this? I think, um, I don't know. If you go to scripture, what I think we do with this is what kind of the first thing is said about Jesus um, when John the Baptist sees him. You know, you know what the first thing John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John knew this was part of the plan as well. And so, okay, well, again, like, what does it mean in the world? Like, what in the world does it mean to behold something? You know? Now, I think that one of the things I love about Denver is that we exist in a city, like, we're very passionate about things. Uh, we get obsessive about things. We get totally kind of, uh, I don't know, like, when I think about beholding, I think about that concept of, like, we behold things that we binge watch on Netflix, and they, like, totally captivate not just our time, but, like, our emotions and, like, everything, right? It's like, like or, or, you know, like, maybe this will be a little bit weird, but have you ever... Um, been so in love that you like stared into the eyes of the person you love for like 30 seconds and you felt like you were going to explode. It was so intense if you did it any longer. Is that weird for me to say? No? Okay. You know, or I was thinking about this. Um, my uh, family, we just, we just took a, a trip. I got back yesterday. And we went on a baby moon uh, because my wife is very pregnant, and uh, we hit 36 weeks in our pregnancy. So we're going we're gonna to have a baby very, very soon. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're going to have a baby very, very soon. And we, it's like, we just took this trip, and, and a lot of it, I think, in retrospect, like what it is that we were trying to do was to like behold a lot of good things in our lives. Just take a little bit of a break and like behold and to fixate and to think about. You know, it's like, like I wanted to take some time and to like, behold, just go to the mountains and like behold the magnitude of nature. Like it's one of the things I love about Colorado is you can drive 30 minutes and you get in these environments that are just so overwhelming and stunning. You just feel like, like I can't really take in the magnitude of the beauty that I'm witnessing. And yet there's this being in the universe who spoke and made these things be. What? What? That's, that's who God is, who's for me. Or, or even just like more practically, like just trying to take space to like behold the sweetness of my daughter being an only child uh, for just a few more short weeks. Like trying to like capture and to fixate and to store something in my heart, just a permanent memory of like, like what she's like as a three and a half year old. Like just this unique season in her life and just trying to treasure it and sort of, I told my wife, like one of the things I just enjoyed was just like taking her on this trip and like seeing how she gets excited about everything. I told my wife, I was like, I hope I get excited about something in the rest of my life as much as my daughter gets excited about everything. Like she saw a telephone with a cord on it for the very first time this week. 
And she like cannot get over it. I know all of you feel very, very old about this, but she was like, what is this? And then we had my mom, like her grandmother, call her at the hotel and then her, boom, her mind was blown by that as well. And then she was trying to FaceTime with the corded telephone and she couldn't get that, like there was only audio, there wasn't video as well. I know, this is the next generation. But it was like, man, like those, those memories, just like beholding them and storing them up in my heart or just even like, trying to really be, we dropped my, my daughter off with uh, one of our dear friends in the church for uh, an evening. And like, we just got away and just trying to like behold and to take in like, like, like the beauty of my wife pregnant at eight months. You know, like I know she's here. So like, I know you're in pain all the time. I know like you already have that baby out of you. But like this unique season, this like beautifully unique season in your life. And I don't know, like, is our next child biological? Do we adopt it? I don't, I don't know exactly. Maybe this is the only time to see my wife at this stage in our lives together. And just to sort of like, not just have pictures, but something deeper, something at a soul level to like, to light and to think about. And, to... and so I don't think that rhythm of beholding, of fixating, of gazing upon, of meditating upon, is actually that foreign from us. It actually comes quite natural to the hobbies that we love. It actually comes quite natural to the things that we binge watch. It actually comes quite natural to any romantic relationship we ever had. It actually comes quite natural to our jobs. What if those desires were not intrinsically bad, but also mere shadows compared to the affection that we showed for the sweetness of Christ towards us. Sin is really, really bad. Jesus is really, really good, and he loves you so, so much. I think that's all I want to say. I don't know what else to say. I, that's, that's why we do this. We're not trying to impose some oppressive system of religion upon you. We are for your joy. We are for God's glory. And that's why we give our lives to this. Let's pray.